Contracts, salary caps. Why do our favorite teams make some of the moves they do? It's usually the money. It's time for the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Hey there, boys and girls. Welcome to another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. As always, presented by BetOnline.ag. They're your online sportsbook experts. Of course, they are the exclusive partner of Podcast One Sportsnet, of which this podcast is part of. Use that promo code PODCAST1, you get that 50% sign-up bonus today. BetOnline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. What a podcast I have for today. David Epstein is the author of the best-selling book, Range. He was the author, is the author of the previously best-selling book, The Sports Gene. Both those books I ravenously read. So much to glean from them, and I thought I'd talk to David about sort of nature versus nurture and match play in terms of careers and what you're going to do, not only in sports, but otherwise. Kind of uh, a different view about two concepts of grit and 10,000 hours and specialization versus breath. You're going to hear all about it, a wide-ranging, rollicking, and very personal interview with David Epstein coming up. First, a rant of the week, and yes... (laughs) Hopefully, this is the last time we're talking about Antonio Brown as we sit here today on a Tuesday afternoon. It appears that he has practiced with the Raiders in a certified helmet. So helmet gate may be over. We may have heard the last of drama coming out of the Raiders. I've been critical of Brown. He's blocked me on Twitter. I've heard from other people saying maybe I'm too critical. I guess what my point always about is really sort of looking at the perspective I have having been an agent and having been a team person. And really, this is kind of on the Raiders as much as I I talk about Brown. Really, you know, they had to know, and if they didn't, it's naive of them, that Brown would take more tolerance than other players and had to accept it with the great talent that he brings. There's no doubting what a scintillating player he is, what an exciting player, how talented he is, and always say greater talent equals greater tolerance. Now, I just, this little rant is sort of directed at Mike Mayock because what I heard him with his frustration in that 40-second clip this week saying he's all in or all out, you know, kind of feeling like it had been enough. The tolerance had run out. And I guess the question to me is sort of, is always kind of what did you expect? It's like when I think about people criticizing our current president, and I criticize him as well, but the question is, what did you expect? People don't change their stripes. You know, people are who they are. The Steelers obviously had some issues of tolerance with Brown, but kept it under wraps or kept a good job of managing it for many years. It's naive to think the Raiders didn't know that. Now, the Raiders may have said, okay, we'll take it for a while with the feet and the helmet, but it sort of reached a breaking point, as you saw from Mike Mayock. So I guess the, the point is, You know, each team has to know its players. These are large locker rooms. This is not basketball. This is not small group of people. And I always say this, to think that locker rooms are kumbaya is very naive in football. You have position groups that kind of stick to each other. You have large variances in size, in color, in backgrounds, in interests, whether it be music or otherwise in this locker room. So it's going to be extremely different for everyone to get along. And Brown comes with some baggage. I don't think anybody's not agreeing with that. But again, maybe Mayock and Gruden, not Gruden, but Mayock could only hold it in so long. But as we sit here today, rant, 
is over because it just seems like Antonio Brown has come into the fold of the Oakland Raiders practice with them, and this will be featured on Hard Knocks, you would think. So he's back. Uh, we'll see if this is the end of drama around Antonio Brown, at least till we get into games and whether he has problems with the quarterback, whatever it may be. But it will be interesting to watch. So Antonio Brown back in the fold, at least temporarily, and we see what's going on with, with, uh, with Brown. He's back with a helmet. That's certified. And feet getting better from the um, maceration done by cryotherapy. By the way, I did cryotherapy today. Yes, wore socks and shoes. I had to get that in. All right, before we get to our guest, which is a special guest of David Epstein, let's hear from The Athletic. The Athletic, as you may know, I'm sure you know, it's great content. Subscription-based, smarter sports coverage, diehard fans. It's a simple model. No ads, no pop-ups, no autoplay. And coverage is beyond the game repacks, recaps, excuse me, smarter analysis, deeper perspective about teams and leagues. Subscribers have full access to all national, local. Some of the names include Richard Deitch, Jason Stark, Stuart Mandel, Bruce Feldman, David Aldridge, Seth Davis, and more. So go to theathletic.com and you can get a business of sports promo code. The code is good for 40% off, $2.99 a month. Yearly subscription, it's case sensitive. So Theathletic.com slash business of sports. Get your 40% off a yearly subscription. Comes out to $2.99 a month. Now, to our guest, the eminent writer. I knew him from Sports Illustrated. I've known him since. We talk all things nature versus nurture, specialization versus breadth, and the role of range in developing talent. Tiger vs. Roger, you're going to hear so much in this podcast. Without further ado, the author of Range and the Sports Gene, David Epstein. One of the great advantages of hosting my own podcast is being able to bring on people that I'm admire of, that I really enjoy, that I read religiously, and basically I can bring on as a fanboy. <laughs> and uh, this is one of those times where I have on this podcast, David Epstein, David's an ex- incredible writer. I follow everything he writes. I uh, was just ravenous about a book a couple years ago called The Sports Gene. And his latest book is Range. And Range is about, I guess, whatever we, we will get into, generalization versus specialization, those kind of issues. Hits home personally uh, about my career, about what I do, about what I tell young people all the time about sports and about best ways for achievement in sports and business and athletics. Welcome to the program, my, uh, I hope I can say my friend, but someone I've admired a long time, David Epstein. David, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I've, I've enjoyed uh, your work from afar. Also, so glad to be connecting. That's awesome. And I, I, I should say, it's, you're not, this is not your maiden voyage on, on the Visit of, Visit of Sports podcast. I had you a couple years ago. If you remember when yeah. it was Olympic time and the Russian athletes were being kicked off, but not as many as we thought being sort of kicked off the competition. Do you remember that? And That's right. Remind, you know, I, I forgot that, that we had talked yeah. about that, but now that you mention it, I, I do remember that. Yeah. Well, they, uh, just to review quickly, they, the, the entire contingent was not sort of dismissed from the Olympics, but some were. Correct. There was, it was mainly... The Track and Field Federation sort of banned 
the whole track and field team, which is the largest contingent. But then there was um, like a process by which individuals could sort of appeal that and get reinstated. And so that that did occur for some of them. Um, and then other athletes in other sports were were able to compete, um, you know, not under their national flag. The, the, the regulations right, right. that were part of their punishment was like their uniforms can only use two, not three of their national colors and stuff like that. So I'm sure they took that punishment very seriously. <laughs> yeah, that was the whole uh, – I remember watching that documentary with, with that biker that was trying to uh, increase his Icarus, times. yeah. Yeah, Icarus. And he stumbled upon that uh, – Grigor was that his name that yeah, ma- yeah masterminded the whole thing and was in trouble and was running from first life it was fascinating it's you know I got interviewed for that documentary before yeah. they stumbled on him and so it, at that point it was a very <laughs> different project it was like how the filmmaker a cyclist right. you know would show that he could beat the testing um you know and so I didn't end up appearing in the film because obviously once they came upon him uh <laughs> in the film as you can tell from watching it it kind of takes a, a very different turn yeah then you ended up on the cutting room floor yeah yeah <laughs> reason very reasonably so <laughs> Quick note about your, and I know you're going to downplay it, of course, your athletic career, but we mentioned track and field as we talked about the Olympics a couple of years ago. Um, mm-hmm. You have been a runner and sort of talk about your background as you approach writing this book about specialization and sort of the, the intensity by which you train for running versus more special, more generalized training, as we always hear now about sports specific training versus more multi-sport training as someone who was a competitive runner and probably still is in your age group uh talk about that if you would yeah well i would call myself an avid jogger now i don't know if i'd call what i do now running (laughs) but i but i still cover miles um so i was uh you know in high school and and as a kid football basketball baseball all the way um Mm -hmm. so i was looking at those but uh, really wanted to play a sport in college. I'm a small guy. Um, I'd broken my arm in football and sort of to stay in shape, got into some track and realized I really sort of loved it. And if I wanted to do college sports, you know, since I, since I would constantly get from coaches, the question, when are you going to grow? Which turns out not to be that productive of a question to ask one of your athletes. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, I got into running late in high school, but I, I wasn't that good. I was improving, but I wasn't that good. Um, and I decided as a half miler, particularly, I decided to try to walk on in college, um, and did that and was not one of the worst guys on the team. I was the worst guy, 800 meter runner on the team. Um, but sort of one of the blessings in disguise of being a walk on was one, first of all, I came to it with, I think general athletic skills that some of the, the more highly touted recruits didn't really have guys that, that plateaued essentially probably had plateaued in high school and really didn't get better in college. Um, but also, since I was a walk-on, nobody really cared like what I was doing. I didn't have to score for the team. You know, I didn't travel with the team. I didn't cost anybody any money or anything like that. And there was an assistant coach who was who, who also nobody really cared about. And so we sort of teamed up a little bit. And I had two years to basically not really try to be good, but just experiment with my own training. You know, try all this different sort of stuff. And if I blow up or I don't do well, like doesn't matter. Like team doesn't need me. Whereas the guys who were big recruits, like they really had to get right to it right away to like very specific training, um, to try to score for the team. And what happened was through that process, I sort of was able to figure out training that worked 
better for me, you know, more personalized for me. It was different from, you know, making, making more use of kind of my, my unique strengths, uh, and covering up some of my unique weaknesses. And so when I hit on that, I started improving like basically every race. Um, you know, and by the time I left, I was a university record holder and had been on one of the university's all time top 10 lists. And so I went very quickly from, uh, the worst to, uh, you know, obviously a contributor. And it, it was really funny because I ended up winning the university's award for this is the, it's called the Gustav Jaeger Memorial Award for the athlete who achieved significant athletic success in the face of unusual challenge and difficulty. My unusual challenge and difficulty just being that I was really bad at first and then got, you know, I'm not sure I would categorize that as unusual challenge and difficulty in the scheme of things, but um, it was fun to get that award. And what exactly did you do to you mentioned sort of you you sports specific terrain, you got better without the pressure of being one of these highly recruited athletes. Can you yeah, drill I mean, into that sorry, a little bit for for the athletes listening again? There people are wondering about specialization or multi sport and tell what to do with their kids and all that. So what made you so much better? I mean, I think I think specifically what happened was since I could do some trial and error, I basically started trying different types of training and and reflecting on how it worked for me. And initially, you, you know, you come in and, and you bump your mileage up a lot from high school to college. Right. Uh, ba- basically, everybody does. And I ended up trying that a little and then going the opposite direction. It turned out I, I realized that I was more kind of explosive and quick than other guys who ran my event. Um, you know, some of them might be faster than me in a, in a sprint, but usually I was, I was kind of quicker and had a little more bounce and it, and, and, and was better in, in the weight room than most of those guys. Hmm. And so, you know, I started to think, and, and my assistant coach, you know, who was interested in physiology started to think, you know, you don't have quite the same makeup as these guys. Like a lot of these guys are good, like long distance runners, you know, good 5k, good mile. You're quick out of the blocks, but you're not so good at that other stuff. And so probably if you have this sort of more explosive physiology, you probably can't take the same training volume as some of these other guys do. And so we started actually dropping my training volume below what I had done in high school, mm. so I, which is very unusual. So I'm doing lower mileage and, and sort of making up for it by doing other things. I'm doing plyometrics, you know, I'm, I'm spending some time in the weight room. I'm doing some like water running. So it's not, you know, not doing pounding. Uh, and so it was kind of swapping out a lot of the mileage for sort of alternative ways of working out that were fine for me. Cause I'd done a bunch of, I'd done, done a bunch of sports, which teaches you how to be able to pick up these sorts of things really quickly. Um, and that worked really well for me. So when we would hit the track, it would be like, high intensity interval type of stuff, but then getting rid of a lot of the, the sort of junk mileage of just piling up miles. So I was, I was, you know, on really low mileage compared to other half milers in college, but I was doing like lots of other types of stuff, whether it was in the weight room, whether it was plyometric exercises, you know, whether it was in the pool. So we kind of lowered the running volume, but diversified the training and kept the, kept the running working out. So when I was doing it, it was, it was very high intensity basically. Um, so, so it was kind of this mishmash of, of different things. Yeah. It's so interesting. It's, it sort of resonates personally because I've always been competing, uh, after my sport of choice growing up tennis, I sort of got into running and biking and triathlons and never really focused structured training until I hired a coach about a year ago that just sort of, I wake up early in the morning, I see what's on the calendar and trust him to know what's best for my, uh, com- competitions you know, one thing I also thought of listening to you was when I started reading the Andre Agassi book. And, mm-hmm. he, you know, this goes back to the 90s where mm-hmm. 
he's he was in shape for tennis, I guess. And the trainer that he hired, Gil Ray, sort of looked at him and said, "What do you do?" So I run five miles. And he and the trainer says, "Well, when have you ever done that on a tennis court? Like run around for five miles?" And he says, "Well, never." Okay. Well, let's change your training. And it just seems to me that we're sort of still in this genesis period of how to train best for your sport. And I know everyone thinks that there's so much uh, analytics and technical and metrics and data right now, but we're probably still in an infancy stage there relatively. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I think the you know, the system, and I wrote about this a little bit in the sports gene, the traditional system, you know, has all the inertia is you throw everybody on like the same training plan that has worked for someone in the past. And then, uh, you know, people for whom that training plan works come out the other end, but you're not really trying to make it good for the individual, right? So some, some countries with their soccer players realize some of their most explosive guys are getting injured because they put everyone on the same training plan. It's the guys who can tolerate the most volume who don't have this explosive physiology, um, you know, are the ones who survive, but that's not really what you want. I, I think it's almost like when I've been around, um, NBA teams, I think most people would be shocked to realize how, um, sort of basic or even suboptimal a lot of their development is, you know, I, I think people in the NBA are in like, don't break anything mode, right? They have these highly skilled players and they basically sacrifice better development for making, you know, not being the one who breaks someone, right? By, by not, right. by not pushing them. Like in a lot of sports, you're an endurance athlete, right? You know that the way to, uh, to make yourself less fragile is to train more in certain ways, right. not to like back off training entirely, which is, which is what happens sometimes. And it, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, this isn't a sport anyone cares about, but when I've gone around the world and try to peek in on training, like it, but I think it's sort of representative of the point. I spent some time at a sumo dojo in Japan Really, and here are guys who are, you know, most of their bouts last like eight seconds or something, you know, right. it's like pure explosion and response if you have a chance for one. And I'm watching their training and it's like, they're, they're like, doing sort of almost like blocking drills like you'd see in the NFL, but instead of it being, you know, pads, there's like a person and you're pushing them sliding across the kind of like dirt floor and then the other way and like a hundred times until a guy's exhausted and someone throws him on the floor. And I'm like, this is, you're training for something completely different than what you're actually doing, right? This doesn't look anything like, I mean, you're, most of their bouts are shorter than guys who run the hundred meters and they're doing what to me looked like endurance training, you know? And so I talked to some of the the trainers and they're like, you know what, like it, it's hard enough to train, to change, uh, the momentum in sports as it is. And this one's wrapped up with religious rituals and all these other old traditions. So just forget about it. You know, but yeah. so I think that's kind of representative sometimes of, of where things are, even though, you know, like you said, analytics are coming in and there's a, there's a lot of new ideas, but I think things change slower than people think. Yeah. And I, I don't want to stay too long on this. I want to get to range obviously, but it's very fascinating to me because as someone who ran the Packers for 10 years, I watched a lot of our strength and conditioning because I had a personal interest in it as well. And I was the one that kind of moved us to a little more yoga, a little more core, even mandating that our tra- our trainers and strength conditioning people do that. Because a lot of the weight training, as you know better than anyone, sort of came from this sort of East German, Russian lifting uh, with the heavy weights. And it was great, again, for linemen on both sides of the ball that engage directly, like mm-hmm. right in front of you. But when you have to be functional, when you have to move, when you have to pick up a, a, a rusher coming from your left, your right, 
then it's more core and it's more functional. It's less pure strength ahead of you. And you sort of have to realize that. I mean, you have to get people to realize, okay, pure strength is one thing, but functionality yeah. and core and flexibility. And, and now I read about Tom Brady and his whole thing is pliability. And you just sort of see this, the way things are going versus the way things are. And I keep saying we're in a revolution and as much as people think we're at the forefront of it, we're just starting. Yeah. And I think you were ahead on that, right? Like now people are now, now nobody would deny the importance of the core, right? Whether they're working it in the right way or not, it's a different question, but yeah, people realize that. I remember th that reminds me too, if there was a four year longitudinal study, the Oklahoma state uh, football program. And what they basically found was that guys got a lot stronger not surprisingly, from the time they came in to the time they left. But for most positions, it didn't have any cause any functional change in what they actually have to do on the field. So the conclusion of the study was basically like we can make guys a lot stronger without making them a lot better, essentially, at, at most positions, which, you know, is is a red flag for sure. But I, I think that's that's more the norm than the exception, you know, for, for the most part. That's fascinating. You know, the other thing is that when you start talking about training, one thing about team sports, and I've noticed this with football, basketball especially, is that you have these off-seasons longer combined with guys making more money, especially at the highest levels. And I mentioned Brady and TB12 and Alex Guerrero. It seems like the guru, the person that's responsible individually for the players, become more important than ever. And I started to see it back when I was at the Packers where our star players would be under one training regimen with their homespun guru and then mm -hmm. come back to our sessions and doing things completely differently. Caused a lot of tension between team sports staffs and individual player trainers. But I would imagine this is only going to get tougher in team sports because everybody's got their guy. You know, we heard about tension with the Patriots and, and Guerrero before. And... Yeah. That's going to only increase. I mean, LeBron James, 24 hours with his guy. It's just it seems to me that there's going to be an inherent tension always now between team strength and conditioning and individual players. I agree completely. And I mean, that tension that you mentioned with with Guerrero, I mean, that that was when and things were going really well, right, for the team mm -hmm. overall. Um, and so imagine if if you know you have someone like that in things, you know, in the team craters, Right. Right. And I assume the tension right. is only going to be that. I, I, yeah, I think that's just a I think you hit it on the head. Like that's that's not going anywhere and it's only going to going to accelerate. And think about what you just said before about, well, this this team or this trainer thought X and this one's thought Y. And they both they both, I'm sure, have their science, have their reasons, have what they always done, what's worked for other athletes. But they're always going to be tension between those two and that I, you're right i think that's going to increase yeah and i think it's going to be interesting how teams try to try to sort of reconcile that because i know like a couple years ago i was got asked to recommend someone as like a sports science coordinator for an nba team you know i had no formal connections nba team they right. were just asking for names you know they want to start getting on the science and and they didn't take any of my suggestions but they they hired like a prominent scientist which is fine but a year later he was gone because what they found was they say all right you know we've got the trainers thinking this coaches thinking this you know some of the guys again have their own their own people and the scientist is just saying well here are the results from the lab you know do with them what you will and that's like right. not useful right you need someone who's helping the coach it's you know 
the coach is the decision maker, right? And this is just one input that's going into how they make a decision. And so eventually they got rid of uh, that person and brought in someone else who was not a scientist, but just sort of knew how to go look for answers and communicate with the coach. And so I wonder if we're going to see more of these kinds of positions um, for people who, you know, can find things out and, and, and can tap a network of scientists who need it, but really know how to talk to coaches and athletes. And some of these guys, like the guy, a guy named Jay Hennessy, who was the, for a long time, the commander in charge of BUDS, the, the uh, basic training essentially for Navy SEALs. Mm. Uh, the Cleveland Indians hired him and they just sort of, I think, like made up a job title, VP of right. Learning, I think it is, or VP of Learning and Development or something. And I think what they have in there is to be, he, because he's someone who obviously knows how to talk to teams and how to talk to to young athletic people and to, and to coaches and also how to go sort of seek out science answers. So I wonder if we'll see more of that position of someone who's almost this, this sort of liaison who can who can talk to everyone but can also go find out answers outside of the team and i don't know but and and he's pretty new in that position but i'm curious if we'll see that rise of sort of the the made-up title of someone who's almost like a science science coach athlete liaison explainer type of person i absolutely think that's going to happen i i can't think of names but i think i've seen some director of sports sciences hired by teams and i think that's certainly a wave Everyone's trying to get an edge, right? Yeah. I mean, if they can get a little bit of edge with a scientist that can bring in those disciplines like you're talking about. I just think back, I'm here in Philadelphia, and it, in 2013, they hired this coach from University of Oregon, speaking of running, <laughs> named uh, Chip Kelly. Mm-hmm. And and I just thinking back, as we talk, how ahead of a time he was. I mean, players would be monitored. Uh, players would be held back for load, hydration, which was such a novel concept back then. Players were monitored for sleep. I remember players telling me that he had us wearing blue blocker glasses at night. He had us drinking this sleep dream potion. He had us monitored how much sleep. And think about all the privacy issues there. Yeah. And this was six years ago. So um, I would imagine that is now in vogue in a lot of uh, programs. But uh Little old Chip Kelly was incorporating that six years ago. I have to say, I think the blue blocker thing is a great idea. There's just like no downside, right? No side effect. They cost a couple mm-hmm. bucks and people keep using their phone at night. So if you're going to do it anyway, like I, I think that's a good one. I'm impressed with that. <laughs> yeah. Cheap, easy, no no bad side effect other than, you know, you look a little silly if you take a selfie with them on probably. But <laughs> right. um, yeah, that's a good idea. More people should do that if they're insisting on reading their phone at night because, you know, for, for I guess if anyone doesn't follow this, it takes it filters out the blue light, which is what signals your brain not to be going to sleep. Yeah, and sleep, as I read and you do too, is so much about recovery and about athletics. It's sleep is such a foundation that people ignore. It's like a badge of honor. I only got four hours of sleep. I mean, yeah. it's obviously, it, it's you're walking around half inebriated without with that. So exactly, uh, exactly. It, it is. You know, I've I've read this sort of recovery pyramid, which. Frankly, I always thought doing things like cryo and massage and acupuncture, et cetera, were kind of layers of recovery. They don't mean anything unless you're getting good sleep is the way I understand it. No, I think that's absolutely right. You know, there's and you reminded me of this the sort of badge of honor concept. There's a, a I don't know why I'm coming back to Japan again, but there's a Japanese word I think it's pronounced like inamuri. Anyway, that's how it's spelled. And it means it's a word that means falling asleep at work. And it's actually 
you know, smiled upon because it means like you've been working so hard that you just couldn't even get up from your desk. You know, you're asleep right at right at your desk. Um, and I think <laughs> I think it's fair to say now that that's probably not a not a productive model. You know, we can be um, we can laud work ethic, I think, without <laughs> without enforcing things that we know hurt people's performance. Right. Right. Those badge of honors where people tweeting out or Instagramming out their 355 wake up time or 417 yeah. wake up time. And right. there's <laughs> unless they're going to bed at nine o'clock. That's great. Um, yeah. But spinning over to range again, books done so well. I've heard you on other podcasts. I've written I've seen so many great reviews of it, and I certainly can add to that. I started getting into why and the how of writing it. It sort of dawned on me to look back. I remember reading, I think it was the second or third to last page. I have it here. So you said this, the question I set out to explore was how to capture and cultivate the power of breath, diverse experience, interdisciplinary exploration within systems that increasingly demand hyper-specialization and would have you, the reader, decide what you should be before first figuring out who you are. I thought that said it succinctly and, and effortlessly of what you set out to do. So now that I framed it, <laughs> I've given you a blank canvas before we get into specifics as to what you found. Well, I think the in, in terms of answering that question, one of the things that stuck in my head um, is, is this particular quote uh, from a woman named Herminia Ibarra, and she essentially studies how people find good match quality. Match quality is a term economists use to describe the degree of fit between someone's abilities and their interests and the work that they do. And turns out this is incredibly important for their performance and for things like their persistence and even their resilience. So like one of the findings from this research is when you get fit, it'll look like grit, meaning if you get people in work that fits them well, they will display more of the characteristics associated with grit, like resilience and perseverance, um, even if they didn't before. And this, this quote of hers is, we learn who we are in practice, not in theory. And what she means by that is that there's a lot of information out there and, and sort of very expensive like personality testing uh, tools that you can buy that imply to us and a lot of cultural mythology that imply that we um, can just introspect and know what we should be doing in the world. Right. That's like making a theory of yourself just by introspecting. But in fact, what the what the psychology in this area says is that you actually have to go do stuff and then reflect on it in order to figure out who you are, what you're good at, what you're interested in. So Herminia also says act and then think. And I think a lot of the people that I wrote about in the book um, were not setting out saying, you know, I'm going to be broad or I'm going to be a generalist or polymath or whatever. Right. They they were basically setting out in search of match quality. Like, how can I go find the work that I feel, you know, fulfilled at, that I'm good at, that maintains my interest? And because that's very unlikely to be the first thing you ever try, they would essentially zigzag their way through the world um, until they got to a space like that. And they would arrive there with a lot of breadth and diverse experiences because of their journey. And then they would sort of keep doing that even once they got into a specific role where they would keep sort of bouncing one way and then the other and triangulating how they can best fit in this role. So it's almost like, like the, the people who successfully did that never, like never got to a place and said, okay, I've arrived, I'm settled here. They, even once they pick a career, 
and they tend to bring to it broad experiences, but even once they pick it, they keep like experimenting and saying, you know, here's something I want to learn or something I want to try and here are the opportunities in front of me and I'm going to try this one and maybe a year from now I'll change because I will have learned something about myself or about my field. And they really recognize that their insight into what they should be doing is constrained by their roster of previous experiences. So they're always sort of doing this continual triangulation of, of who they are and what, what work is available to them. And I think that a byproduct of that is that they accumulate these diverse experiences and continue expanding their toolbox where I think the natural inclination of a lot of people is just kind of get to good enough or to get to competent and then just do the same thing over and over and over and over. So I don't think we have to say I'm setting out to be broad, but if we keep our searching for match quality hat on, we we tend to get those things anyway. And I want to be clear. I want you to be clear about, I'm sure everybody sort of goes to, okay, what's the lesson, you know, specialize, generalize. And I, I sort of noted throughout your book, there's no one right answer. Sure. And we'll talk, we'll talk about the Tiger versus Roger in a minute. But specialization works for some, doesn't work for others. But I just sort of found it refreshing in my mind as someone who has meandered through various careers and found passion and love for a lot of different ones. Um, that I guess the, not to say that's okay, but that's a way to go. And that's to find your way in a way that doesn't have to be hyper-focused. No, that's right. I mean, that, that was kind of the main finding of this this study I described by two Harvard researchers um, that they called the Dark Horse Project, but that wasn't the uh, initial name of the study. Basically, they were looking for how people find fulfilling careers, and this ranged from like pilots to midwives to pro athletes, musicians, like all over the map. And um, what they found when they brought these people in for informational interviews, you know, just to begin the, the study, the, they noticed that a lot of them would say things like, well, you know, don't tell people to do what I did because I started in law school. I did this other thing and then I realized right. that wasn't for me and went this other direction. And and so they end up having changed directions a bunch and sometimes they decide the thing they want to do isn't out there and they have to be an entrepreneur and start something. And so they, they would all say, so I got lucky, but don't tell people to do what I did. So they all viewed themselves as dark horses having come out of nowhere. Not all of them. It was the large majority. Um, and so the researchers named the project the Dark Horse Project because they, they wanted uh, to let people know that this is the norm now. You know, this is not some kind of outlier experience. There were indeed people in the study who had followed a more linear, specialized uh, right. path to what they were doing. It was just the the very small minority, whereas I tend to think we often mistake it for being the norm. And is it a personality-driven thing? Again, like I was growing up looking at those kids, and I'm sure you knew these kids, that had where they wanted to go to school, what they wanted to do, what, and then what graduate school and where they're going to practice, whatever it was, by 10th grade, 9th grade. And yeah. I kind of looked at them like, Jesus, what's wrong with me? You know, <laughs> why don't I know any of that? And then now I'm looking back, you know, those those kids either veered off or they got they got sidetracked or nothing. It, they're not happy. And I find myself glad that I didn't go that path. But I guess the question is, maybe this is a message to all those like me. Like, <laughs> you don't have to feel bad thinking you're not as good as those other kids in 10th grade that know their path or think they know it. 
For sure. And and I, I should say, I, I sort of had that feeling. I definitely had that same feeling you described, but I had it later because earlier I was one of those kids who was like, <laughs> right. this is what I'm going to do. You know, I was going to go to the Air Force Academy, be a test pilot, be an astronaut. You know, I had all this stuff mapped out and I didn't end up doing any of those things. Right. And, and, and I'm, I'm glad for how things worked out. I still don't know what I'm going to do next. So, you know, that's, right. <laughs> I'm still in that exactly. position. Me too. Yeah. But I went through a long period where I was like, what's wrong with me? Like, why do right. I keep deviating from these plans? And, you know, it turns out again, especially with the pace that the work world changes now, that having those long term plans is is actually not always not always really helpful. And you're kind of better off working forward from opportunities instead of working backward from where you think you should be in 20 years. But but I, I did really have that feeling like what's you know, am I some kind of job commitment phobe sort of and when it really decided that I want to do this project was actually when I got, um, I'd been thinking about it sort of in different ways, but when I got invited to talk to, uh, some Pat Tillman foundation scholars. Mm-hmm. So I think people listening to this, I probably don't need to explain the Pat Tillman foundation much for, but anyway, it gives scholarships to military veterans and spouses, uh, for career changes basically, cause they're getting out of the military or whatever. And, and typically their stories are, you know, if you look at their resumes, so, so now I'm on the selection committee for who gets the scholarships. Um, and if you just, and and so when I get the materials for the applications and I look at their resume, it does look kind of scattered, you know, they'll have a break or maybe they, they didn't go into the service right away. They worked for a little while, then they go into the service and then they come out and they do something totally different. And when you look at, you know, if you just look at like a LinkedIn page, you're kind of like, huh, they've, they've sort of bounced around. And, and even I have this feeling of like, gosh, you know, are they, you know, not really sure who they are. Right. And, and then you, then you read the essays and the other materials that come with their story and their, their, um, kind of these like peer reviews that, that come as part of the application. And you realize that far from being disjointed, it's actually very much a personal growth narrative, right? It'll be like, I did this thing. I, I realized I could make a bigger impact going and doing this in the military. And in the military, I realized a lot of things weren't how I thought they would be and realized I could actually make a much bigger impact, um, doing, you know, whatever it is they want to do. And that requires me to get out and change careers again. And so, so if you just look at the resume again, it looks like this person just doesn't know where to go. But then with all the pieces together, it's like, no, this is a person who is responding to the lessons that life is teaching them by continually adapting and saying, here's how I can make an even bigger impact. Here's an interest or ability of mine. I didn't know I had that I discovered in some high pressure situation. And now I know I need to use that to be more impactful. And so it, it, it kind of impressed upon me, first of all, the danger of just, uh, you know, just going by the LinkedIn resume as opposed to learning more about someone. But, right. but these people who have these incredible stories, right? They're like, I remember, so after I gave a talk about, um, delaying specialization in the power of breadth, just right. as a small group of veterans, you know, it's like a Navy SEAL comes up and tells me, I'm so glad former Navy SEAL who at the time he was talking to me was in grad school at Harvard and Dartmouth is telling me like, everyone's telling me I'm behind. Like, I feel, I don't know if I'll ever be able to catch up. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. Like everything you've done exudes <laughs> excellence, you know, and you're feeling behind. And, and then I kind of felt like, but I know what you're talking about. And that, that's where I really decided maybe this is a project that's important to take on. If it's even gotten to people like this, <laughs> where they feel like, I don't know if I should change, even though it's what I want to do. So that kind of propelled me a little bit. Absolutely, David. I mean, I think what what we're describing here, and I, it hits home personally, is that your book has given some validation to people where, you know, listen, 
personally, a lot of people call me, wow, you're, you're so successful. Well, I've kind of meandered, you know, and I don't, like you just said, I don't know what I'm going to do next. And I don't have a big, big old plan. And I can't answer that. Where are you going to be in five years thing very well? So I think even people that are quote unquote, very successful, that people have called me that I'm like, I needed this book. <laughs> I needed to feel like, okay, I didn't go down this narrow path. I didn't become this hyper-specialized. Now, in some ways, me personally, I have. I saw a void in the media about mm -hmm. business of sports, and I attacked it. But I never thought of myself as a specialist. But I suppose in one area I am. But I think the overarching point is that what you've described with the Tillman Foundation, there's so many of them, us, out there. And this gives us a little bit of validation. Yeah. And I mean, I think what you're describing is, is again, reacting to an experience, right? Instead of sticking to some ironclad 10 or 20 year plan, you said, here, I see an opportunity um, yeah. and, and I'm going to fill it. I mean, that resonates with me a lot, right? Because I, I, um, I was like living in a tent in the Arctic training to be a scientist when I decided for sure to become That's a writer. Right. <laughs> um, and well, so, you know, and then I arrive at, eventually arrive at Sports Illustrated as a temp fact checker. And, you know, I sort of thought, I knew I wanted to get off the science track, but I kind of thought, okay, well, that was, for a while, I thought, well, that was wasted time. And then pretty soon I realized it's my sort of ordinary science skills, I would say, like in the science realm were, were pretty ordinary. But then you take those and you put them in the context of a sports magazine. And suddenly I realize I have some tools that, that other people there don't have. And that's, that's really what propelled me kind of from being the temp fact checker to, you know, not that there's anything special about me, but like was, became the youngest senior writer there very much just because I came in with these oddball experiences that meant I kind of didn't have to compete against anyone because I was on my own ground sort of, right? you know? Right. And so it sounds like you too are like looking for that own ground where you can mesh some of your skills and experiences and ideas so that, so that you don't have to be in like zero sum competition with a ton of people. And you can kind of, and, and I enjoy that more when I'm doing my right. own thing instead of feeling like I'm in a zero sum competition with someone else. You know, I want to add something to the, to the field, not just sort of try to squeeze someone else out who's doing the same things as me. Um, so yeah, yeah, I feel that same way. And the validation, you know, I'm, I'm obviously I'm glad to, glad to provide that. But a, a lot of what I wanted to do too, was I think this, you know, this conversation with both of my books, there's these conversations, you know, nature versus nurture and sports mm -hmm. or how broad or specialized to be are things that I absolutely cannot answer perfectly. And I don't think anybody can, but I think they're conversations that are important to people. And so my goal is to um, hopefully th – those are conversations I think that usually only happen by intuition. And my hope is to bring evidence to them and make those conversations more productive and more interesting. And with range, I especially want that to be the case for people who are in position of hiring and managing. So, you know, hopefully they – yeah, not that I think that I have enough influence to do this, but maybe it's, you know, one brick in a, in a large wall that needs to be built um, to tell people in charge of that. Like, look, these these people aren't just going to be failures because they don't look like the square peg in the square hole that you're trying to fill. You know, you want to cultivate some of this breadth. I'm not saying everybody has to be this way, but but the work of Abby Griffin that I wrote about in the book, I mean, she studies these so-called serial innovators, people who make repeated breakthroughs and her advice to what she, she describes them, she says these people often have you know switched between jobs. They have a need to learn outside their domain. They have a need to talk to people outside of their area of expertise. They use other fields as analogies. They read more and more widely than colleagues, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And then she warns HR people saying, if you're just looking 
for the best fit for the narrow job description you have, you will screen these people out. Right. right. So I hope that maybe it contributes a little to, you know, wh- whoever picks it up and is in charge of, of personnel and managing may hopefully tweak their thinking a little bit in some cases. I guess, how does it jibe though with young people? Because again, like I get asked all the time and I have students, you know, what's the best way to get into sports mm-hmm. or to get a job in sports or to find their, find their way. And again, they'll look at me and say, well, this guy meandered, he was agent, he was team, he ran a team in Spain, you know, media, how did that happen? So I guess I'm kind of, I'm kind of torn and maybe people out there listening are between sort of find your way by trying different things and you can't get in unless you have a hyper-specialized skill set that's going to differentiate you from the pack trying to get these jobs. So you know, somebody wants to get into sports, I tell them, don't just tell the future employer that, hey, I love sports. That's not good enough. Yeah. Or I want to work in a team. Well, what do you want to do for the team? What exactly, how do you want to work for that team? What can you take off the plate of the person interviewing you? Or you want to be an agent. Why do you want to be an agent? What's going to make you a better agent? Why do you, who do you know? So it's almost like I tell them, you've got to be deep and narrow in terms of what you want to do. But then sort of jiving that with show a generalized interest in all the things we're talking about as well. Yeah, it's it's tricky. I mean, that reminds me of when, you know, when I was at SI and, and you get questions from people who are early in college and they say, well, I want to work at SI or ESPN or wherever in sports media. Mm-hmm. And should I major in English or journalism? And right. that, that was probably the single most common question I got. And my first instinct was to say journalism because I'm like, well, if you know this is what you want to do, might as well get a head start. And my second instinct was to say English. And then my third, if I thought about it, I said, you know, I majored in geology and astronomy. I really have no <laughs> idea what to tell you about this. But honestly, a statistics or biology course won't hurt you and it might differentiate you. So I'm, I might try something like that or an econ class, right? Like um, I would go for well, – because we all become – specialized to some degree or another at some point or another. Right, right. And, and I, I think it's, you know, like I ended up writing about sports and science. You, you ended up uh, writing about business and sports. So I think it's bringing something different to the table, like try to, try to get, and, and now these are more well-developed areas. Um, and then there was this whole, you know, I was talking to, uh, Seth Partnow recently. He was, he, he started just writing about sports statistics on a blog just for himself that he said very few people re- read except for some of them happen to be people running teams. And next thing you know, he's the analytics guy for the Milwaukee Bucks, right? Just by doing these, these other things. So I think some of this is a bit of a moving target, right? Cause it's like, what are these, what are these other gaps that will need to be, will need to be filled with skills that aren't in the direct line of sight of people working on teams. And I, I don't really know what those are. Um, but I think the advice to, to get to know people is always a good one, right? Like try to right. network broadly in the area and that's how you find out what's needed and get alerted to like what's open and, and what the new trends are and things like that. And so my feeling is that maybe you can combine some of those approaches, which with dipping your foot into the industry and, and sort of using that to figure out what are those different advantages where you can bring something, you know, outside the normal toolbox. Otherwise, you're really climbing, you're, you're really fighting uphill because right? Right. there's so many people looking for it. So what, what can you do? What can you do differently? Yeah. And it really resonated when you talked about the Tillman Foundation applicants, because, you know, when I interview young people, I'll, I'll look at, okay, see the good grades, see the good college, see the good 
first job or whatever. And then I'll see something down there about uh, I swam with developmentally disabled children in the summers. And I'm like, tell me about that. Yeah. You know, tell me, tell me about that. And then you may see a passion and you may see someone light up their eyes and talk about the way they these kids change their lives. And I'm like, OK, I like this one because she or he has a passion that can be transferred to what we need. But that's, you know, what I tell young people all, all the time is when they talk to people, show a passion. Don't just do the rote. Yeah. You know, tell them what what lights you up, what gets you going and why. And they'll see that transfer to what they need. Yeah. And I mean, you think about experiences like that, right, where you're relating to people, um, you know, who are very different from you and have very different experiences and you're finding a way to relate to them and to cause some, you know, some instant intimacy in those things. Like, I mean, those are those are skills I think right. are useful in basically any workplace, right, where you're, you're put in a position where you have to try to communicate and work with people who um, just are very different and have very different challenges. And learn how to respect them and overcome communication barriers and all those sorts of things. And I just think that, like for me, a lot of that I think sort of came through um, my first kind of semi-stable job in journalism. I don't know if I'd call it that stable, but um, <laughs> was as the guy who starts at midnight at the New York Daily News. Right. Uh, and of course, you know, as I wrote, nothing happy that's going to the Daily News happens between midnight and 10 a.m. So I'm sure you can imagine like what kind of stuff I was doing. But right. and that's all just street reporting. You know, you're going out to where something bad happened, basically. And the trick to it, other than learning how to find people, is um, how can you like very quickly start to build some instant intimacy with people who have very different backgrounds and very different challenges are and are in a very different spot than you are at that moment. In many cases, you know, one of the worst spots of their life in some cases. And how do you find ways to communicate with those people? And and that's the difference between, you know, being able to do that job competently and not. And that was just a tremendous lesson for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so sometimes with young aspiring journalists, I, I would suggest that, like, go try to work the night shift at one of these, you know, real city paper. And people don't really like to take that advice. I can't say it was fun, um, but it was a heck of a learning experience, but I do understand like why, <laughs> why, why people don't really like to take that advice. But I think you can get those kinds of lessons in many other ways, but I do think it's, it's worth getting them by sort of looking outside of your, your normal uh, view. So interesting. And I wanted to talk to you about all these wide ranging topics, a couple of things on the book. I won't belabor. I know you've talked about the book so much. The, the, you, it's interesting because we're on talking about sports. You start out the book, which is about so much more than sports or athletes with the Roger versus Tiger example. And to give a quick synopsis, Tiger Woods specialized laser focus on golf, partly due to his parents or his father. And Roger Federer kind of meandering around different sports, wanted to play soccer with his friends. The coaches wanted to move him up to the highest level. He wanted to stay back with his friends. Now, obviously, they're both iconic athletes. Uh, you know, Federer, I'm biased. He's like my favorite of all time. Um, but how much of that is the sports they play versus their individual situations and sort of, I guess, the lessons learned from those two examples. Yeah. And that's, that's, uh, that's a good question. And my, my initial question with those, I think everybody, you know, even if people don't know the details of the tiger story, they sort of know the gist. It's that, that culturally prevalent. Um, and when I, 
when I sort of started learning, th- this kind of came out actually of this Roger Tiger thing. First, after my first book, I got invited to debate Malcolm Gladwell at the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics right, Conference. Right. Um, and he'd written about the importance of early specialization. And so, you know, me being the science writer at SI at the time said, well, let me, if that's the hypothesis, let me go see what, what the research has to say. And saw that in most sports, future elites have this so-called sampling period where they, they play a wide variety of sports. They gain these general skills, learn about their abilities. Um, and they delay specializing until later than peers who plateau at lower levels. And so once I saw that, I sort of got curious saying, gosh, that's counterintuitive to me. Um, you know, and, and we came off the stage, he sort of said, you got me on that one. That, that, that late specialization thing. That's what you should write about. Um, <laughs> that's and I, I was so not ready to write another book at the time. So it wasn't, didn't even, I was just in one ear and out the other. Um, and you know, so I started thinking about if that was the norm, who are, why don't we hear about it? And who are some of the athletes uh, who followed that path and turned out Roger Federer was a typical one and obviously a dramatic example, both because of how many sports he played as a kid, you know, how not focused he was on, on moving up to higher levels early on. And of course, how good he got as an adult. Yeah. And so I wanted to, the reason I start the book with those is because they, they kind of were the, the thought symbol that started the project for me of saying, well, here we have the Roger and the Tiger. Model. Obviously, both of these worked for these individuals. You know, there's a million ways to get to the top. Um, which one is the norm? And it turns out it's the Roger model, even though we really only hear the Tiger model. And I thought it was so dramatic because you couldn't really pick, you know, a more globally renowned figure than Roger Federer. And I thought it would be impactful for people to hear, no matter how much they followed him and like him, they probably don't know his development story even though they know the tiger development story. And, and why is that? And I think it's because it's not as, it's sort of not as dramatic. It's not as tidy, um, for a, for a self-help message. Um, but I think it's really important to know that that's, that's actually the norm. And then my question was, do we see this in, in other areas? And the answer is yes, we do. And some of that has to do with what you mentioned with, with the characteristics of the task. So there's a, kind of a surprising dearth of research on golf for how popular a sport it is. I don't know why that's the case, but, but it is, but I can believe that early specialization does in fact work in golf, um, or, or at least is not harmful. Uh, but golf is the epitome of what the psychologist Robin Hogarth called a kind learning environment, which means you're trying to do the same thing over and over. All, all the next steps are perfectly clear and the goals are clear. The information's available, you know, maybe people even take turns, um, you get feedback whenever you do something that's perfectly accurate and immediate and, you know, every work tomorrow will look like work yesterday. So people, some people who study golf characterize it as almost like an industrial skill. You're trying to do the same thing over and over with as little deviation right. as possible, more or less. The, the other sports, sports that require so-called anticipatory skills or the invasion sports where you have to judge things in a dynamic way. Um, where, you know, you're, you're judging bodies, you're judging what other players are trying to do before it happens, flights of balls, all those things. Those are a little more toward what Hogarth called a wicked learning environment where, um, it's not exactly clear what's going to happen next or what you have to do next necessarily. Um, conditions can be changing, you know, people can be trying to deceive you in many cases, right? When you think about football, I think I just saw a Actually, I just yesterday was reading a paper about deception in football where if you go against the normal run pass based on the down, there's actually a little ad- advantage to doing that that's not just based on the play you picked but based on um, doing something unusual. It has a little bit of an advantage. So there's deception involved and 
feedback may not always be immediate or may not be perfectly accurate. And in those cases, uh, it turns out that the more you see those as the characteristics of an endeavor, the more you want to go with the Roger model, where you sort of have these broader skills and exposures early, because it mm-hmm. leads to this in line with this finding psychologist that is, goes as breadth of uh, breadth of training predicts breadth of transfer. And what that means, transfer is the term psychologists use to describe um, the ability of someone to take their skills and knowledge and apply them to a situation they've never quite seen before. So, mm-hmm. you know, you're trying to do something a little new, which is occurring quite frequently in sports. And what predicts your ability to do that is how broad your training base was. And in, in golf, you maybe don't need that broad training base the same way because you're trying to do similar things over and over and over. But the the more wicked the sport gets, the more you need that. And, and you know, most of us out in the wide working world are in a much more wicked environment than even any of the sports, I would say. Yeah, and I love that term you just used, wicked environment, because so much is changing out there. You can't just go by rote. But as yeah. you said, maybe in golf, maybe with practice of instruments, you talk about those Polgar sisters uh, playing their instruments, uh, maybe you can. But to me, it's just kind of like I, when, I, when I'm reading your, that book, your book about this, these areas, I'm thinking of the Mike Tyson quote, that eminent philosopher Mike Tyson <laughs> said, <laughs> I had a plan until I got punched in the face. And yeah. to me, that is one of the great quotes of our time, because how do you adjust? Everyone can focus, but can you refocus? Can you adjust? Can you adapt? Can you change? And um, I think what you just discussed is a way to be uh, that's different than maybe that sort of laser focus one way. Yeah, and I mean, I probably should have, before I used the term wicked probably should have described a little more which is basically what's coming next isn't always clear when you do get you know feedback it might be delayed it might be inaccurate and and the challenge changes sometimes a little sometimes a lot and um you know and so the more that's representative of a sport the more important that kind of adaptability is and then you look at the the world outside of sports and and you really see that uh where especially with the the pace of change of the work world that people need to be really adaptable. In fact, I didn't, I didn't stick this in the book, but I, I kind of wish I had, I had to cut like 20,000 words or something. But, Ugh. um, I was looking at these studies of, of people who are matched for, you know, socioeconomic status, uh, parents, years of education, their test scores, their own years of education, things like that. And the only difference was whether they got specialized career oriented education or more general education and how they do in the, in the work world. And, you know, since we're, we're now in a knowledge economy where when we were this kind of more specialized training worked really well when we were in an industrial economy where people could usually expect to face the same challenges over and over and over for a long time. Um, but now that's not the case right now. People, the work world changes really rapidly. And what these studies show is that people who get that more specialized uh, career training in a knowledge economy do jump out to an income lead after their education mm. because they have more domain specific skills, but they end up less adaptable. And so they end up spending a lot less overall time in the labor economy. Uh, hmm. so the ones, the people with the more sort of general, broader early education, and again, these people are matched for all their other characteristics. Um, they end up getting out a little behind in income early on, but they spend much more time in the labor market because they can adapt to different types of work. And I think that's sort of that's sort of representative of this conundrum a little bit. 
Yeah, and I think in our in our final moments, I want to address two topics that have gotten so much publicity in recent years as kind of the way to go. And I'm not saying you're definitely brushing back against them, but like we've talked about throughout this this talk about just thinking different ways. One is the concept of grit, and then we'll finish with who you mentioned earlier, Malcolm Gladwell's and his 10,000 hours. But the concept of grit to me has always been just keep at it, persevere, never quit, right? And that seems to be a foundation of a lot of life advice, never quit. Where I, I can't think of specific examples, but throughout your book, it's kind of like, it's okay. You know, some of the most successful people and those adaptable people, they quit and they find something else. Not only is it okay, um, but, you know, like there's there's some research I discussed in the book by Steve Levitt, uh, who people know as the Freakonomics yeah. economist, that shows that when people are thinking of quitting their jobs, basically they should. Uh, he set up this experiment where right. people who were thinking about quitting their jobs followed the results of a coin toss on whether to do it or not. And the people who, who flipped the coin, I think it was heads, tells them to change. They end up better off. And there's a, there's a bunch of evidence I cite from different areas that shows that when people are often quitting in response to match quality information, right? They feel like they shouldn't quit. But the reason they're thinking about quitting and looking for something else is because there are They've learned something about themselves and they've learned something about their job and there are better fits for their interests and abilities. And so they do get set back when they quit um, in terms of earnings and things like that. But their growth rates are higher. And so they, you know, in the long run, they more than make up um, for what they lost. And that that's kind of, to me, one of the, I guess, an important sub-theme of the book, this idea that sometimes the things you can do that make the most sense at the moment or cause the most immediate improvement can actually undermine your long-term development and long-term performance. But that's a really deeply counterintuitive thing uh, to think about. And so with, with grit, yeah. like you said, the, the psychological construct of grit that's gotten very popular um, is based on a 12-question survey that half the points are awarded for resilience and perseverance and the other half for I think persistence of effort is the the technical term for the half the survey, and the other is consistency of interests. And so you you get points for um, being resilient and also for not changing what you do. So it's very much implies the importance of specialization, and and grit turns out to be important for performance when people are selected for things like they're in the finals of the national spelling bee. You know how how well will they do or cadets going into West Point, will they get through the rigorous orientation known as beast barracks? Right. But those people are highly pre-selected for a goal, right? And life isn't a six week orientation and a huge portion of those gritty cadets end up leaving the army as soon as they can because they identify better matches outside of the army. So did they suddenly lose their grit or did they suddenly realize they could fit with work better elsewhere? And I think the evidence shows it's the latter. And in fact, the Angela Duckworth, who's the researcher yeah. most associated with grid, the same um, week that my book was published, I subscribed to her newsletter. And the title of her newsletter that week was Summer – and this was before my book was published, so it could be totally independent. But um, was titled Summer is for Sampling, where huh. she talks about how important it is for kids like – not to stick with something until they find where they should be gritty. And she describes how it took her a decade of trying things to figure out where she should be gritty. So the advice sort of maybe ends as you should be gritty when you should be gritty, which I totally agree with, right? That's not as clean advice as just pick and stick with something. But I think that's much more reflective of the reality of the research, which is that a lot of quitting 
occurs not because someone doesn't have fortitude, but in response to um, information that they didn't know before about other opportunities and about their own skills and abilities. And so I think we should be – we often underrate the how much we learn about ourselves and about the work that's available and prioritize just picking and sticking. And, and I don't think that's a – you know, I think we need a nuanced vision there and especially because – of some something else I write about that's good to keep in mind, the end of history illusion, which is this psychological finding that we all recognize we've changed a lot in the past based on our experiences and then think that we won't change much in the future. And we 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 miss this, like we we underestimate future change at every time point in life. We say, Yeah, I changed a lot before, but now I'm done. Right. And so it's good to be aware that you will change your, you know, what you think your strengths and weaknesses, what your interests are, how you want to spend your time, what your values are, all these things at every time point in life will change more than you think they will. And so if you're just picking something and sticking with it only, then you're kind of, you know, trying to trying to make a choice for someone who doesn't yet exist in a world you can't really yet conceive. And so I think we need to be more open minded about continuing to triangulate the best fit as as we go forward for our entire life. It's so true. And I know so many people that are just, they're in jobs or maybe relationships that they're safe, they're comfortable, they're good. They've been there a while. They feel good. They're like an old shoe. But they know they should get out and they don't. And I think we're all victim of that. Um, You know, I mentioned my time at the Packers. There was a time there I was like, this is unbelievable. I'm getting to go to games. I'm doing these contracts. I'm in this town that wraps itself around a team. And then that was great for a few years. And then I realized I've done all this. I've done all the contracts. I've experienced the title town. I've gone to the, the games sitting there three hours before and three hours after was, was pain to me rather than excitement. Uh, but it took me a while to get out. And because I just talked about it, safe, comfortable, high paying, prestigious, all those things. It's hard to leave. It's hard yeah. to leave and find another passion too, which I'm so glad I did. But uh, and I've never looked back. But that's what that's what stagnates so many. I mean, you've probably left. I would think you know, knowing something about your work history, but certainly not everything. Um, you've probably left a number of jobs that other mm-hmm. people from the outside would look at and say, like, you got to be crazy, you yeah. know, to to leave that. <laughs> um, but. But you're not like, right. The, and especially if you're someone who's oriented toward keeping that fit as you change as a person and also broadening your own toolbox, then, right. you know, you can't, you can't go to the weight room and lift the same weights the same number of times every day. Like that's not how you might not get worse, but that's also not, not how you get better. Right. I'm also, as you, I'm sure are sort of, a, I study fitness and nutrition in the body and just seems like one of the biggest issues for illness and infirmity is stagnation. And it seems like that that's true in life too, where you're just, your blood, your organs, it's just stuck, you know, you're just stuck inside and you're not moving it out. So it seems to me that's a metaphor for careers in life as well. Yeah. Yeah. As someone who really truly has no idea what I'm doing next, I, I, I <laughs> embrace that. Yeah. I like that. And finally, you mentioned Malcolm Gladwell, and I, I wasn't at that MIT event, but I certainly saw it on, on video. Um, I've been at that event every year. And uh, the Sloan Conference, where I've been lucky enough to speak as well. Um, the 10,000 Hours and Outliers, such a powerful concept to so many people. 
and I think taken to alternative alternative levels by parents mm -hmm. with the specialization of kids, whether it be academic or athletic, to get that scholarship, to get that success out of their kids. So I guess we sort of we'll sort of end on this topic. I don't think for a minute you set out to disprove the 10,000 hour concept, but where do we come out from range about that Malcolm Gladwell concept? I mean, here's what he said. So our, that initial debate was the first time he and I ever met. Um, and then we became, we were both avid runners and kind of became running buddies and debate mm -hmm. on our own time after that. But, um, that was, I guess, 2014 when we first met, we were invited back to Sloan in March and, Toward the end of this one, he said, I believe I can I now believe I conflated two ideas. The idea that it takes a lot of practice to become good at something, which is true, with the idea that in order to become good at X thing, you should do X and only X from as early as possible, which I now believe is false. And hmm. so I would say he and I are in totally in agreement now um, because that's that's absolutely what I believe. One of the things in my first book that I sort of pushed back against in the 10,000 hour rule was from the underlying research, which had this assumption that doesn't sound as sexy, so it doesn't get in books, but it, it's an, it's part of that work. It's called the monotonic benefits assumption, which is essentially the idea that two people who do this are at the same level and do the same practice will benefit exactly the same amount. And that turns out to be absolutely untrue from basically every study of skill development in everything. And so, so that's one thing I was pushing back against because what the science actually shows is is that like I did in college, it's really important to figure out what the best kind of training for you is, not to say I can do what everyone else does and we'll all improve the same amount. In fact, right. anyone who's been part of like a college track training group notices that everyone can do the same things and, and you might your race times might get more different, not more the same if you're not paying right. attention to kind of personalizing for yourself. So I pushed back against that. Um, but at this point, I'd say – you know, Malcolm and I are on the same page because I agree with what he said exactly. A lot of practice is important to get good, um, but that doesn't imply that you should be doing only the thing you're eventually going to do from as early and as nearly as possible. So, so we're in agreement now. <laughs> we bring it full circle. We're the yeah. 10th and an hours guy and the range guy are together. <laughs> yep. So many great quotes in the book. And I always think of, I've mentioned a few like Mike Tyson, one and from my history where I I went to Stanford and our, one of our directors of admissions, uh, he just said a, a line that sort of struck me from early on. I keep thinking about it, which was allow for serendipity in your life. Because as, as I just said, you sort of go on different paths and maybe some people and maybe there were things I didn't take. But some paths I decided, OK, I'll move to Barcelona. I'll move to Green Bay, Wisconsin, where I had to look it up on a map. <laughs> and and maybe some people wouldn't do that. But. It just tends to, to ring true for, for high performers that I've seen and people that I would value as successful. Sort of, You need that practice, as you and Malcolm have talked about, but uh, you need to meander some too. Yeah, I like the one of the reasons I quoted the, you know, the investor and computer scientist Paul Graham. Um, right. Uh, y Combinator. He, he, he posted this high school graduation speech he wrote but that he apparently never delivered uh, where he basically tells the graduates – to ignore the normal graduation speech of which is essentially like picture who you're going to be in 20 years and walk confidently forward. And he says, you know, basically says those are well-meaning. What the people are probably saying is don't get, don't get beat down by people telling you can't do things or, or, or just by the world. But what they really should be saying, you know, is, is look at the opportunity in front of you and 
um, work forward from promising opportunities instead of having this this ironclad vision. And he says in computer science we call that premature optimization. You know where you where you've decided what to do before you really know what you should be doing. Right. Um, and and so I think I think that was a pretty cool. He encapsulated it really well. So and I think that's, that's a, yeah, it's sort of that's related. That's a great to it, phrase. Right? Yeah, it's a great phrase. David Epstein, I'm such a fan. I really appreciate it. And just, just such a great pleasure having you on the podcast. And hope this is number two of so many times you're with me here. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll hold you to that. I appreciate <laughs> it. Uh, I really enjoy the conversation. I think we've both had you know, sort of interesting, like I said, we've both probably left some jobs that, that people raise their eyebrows at, but but I think it, I think it sounds like it's worked out okay for us. Yeah, and I, I don't know if you got this message from someone at SI that you both, you and I know, but it was uh, John Wertheim, who's executive editor there, told mm-hmm. me, you got to meet this guy, David Epstein, <laughs> way back, and I'm glad we did. Oh, no, I, di- I didn't know that. And, and speaking about a guy who has like a, a lot of jobs, I've learned that yeah. John Wertheim is, you know, love John Wertheim, and I've also learned that I can't take career advice from John Wertheim because I think he has like an identical twin in secret who does half his work for him because I don't know how he gets that much stuff done. But so you got to be careful about who you take career advice from, unless you also have a hidden identical twin who will do half your work. Yeah. John and I have a lot of jobs and I always say I have a lot of jobs because that means I don't have to have a real one. <laughs> that's, that's the trick, right? That's the whole trick. That's the trick. Thanks again, David. I really appreciate it. I encourage everyone to go read range. I know it's on all these bestseller lists, but my audience, it's perfect for, and I encourage everyone to read it. It's A plus, as usual, all your work is. I appreciate that. I really appreciate it. Enjoy the conversation. Really hope you enjoyed that with David Epstein. One of my favorite interviews of all these podcasts I've done, hundreds of them. Just knows so much. So much resonated with me. So much about people finding their way in different ways beyond the ten thousand hours. And as you heard. Him and Malcolm Gladwell came together at the end, as with Angela Duckworth and the concept of grit. Really hope you enjoyed it, and uh, I'll keep putting it out there for people, because I think it's just going to be just a great podcast with David Epstein, author supreme, and just knowledgeable on so much as a scientist that turned to writing. Even though there's no sports team, I'm a true diehard fan, may still be the Packers. I always appreciate a good rivalry. And there's a show called Sports Wars. It's from Wondery. It tells the story of some of the greatest sports rivalries of all time. You know, we just talked about Roger Federer. We'll see the Nadal Federer on the Sports Wars. Kobe and Shaq, how did they generate three consecutive NBA championships within all that conflict? There's a new season. It's about two college football rivalries, Oklahoma versus Texas, Georgia versus Florida. Even if you didn't go to either of these schools, obviously the history of these robberies is intense. You don't want to miss these stories. So stay tuned to the end of the podcast and hear a clip from Sports Wars. It's time to hear from you. If you've got a question for Andrew, leave him a voicemail at 484-416-5654. First up this week is a question from San Antonio, Texas. Andrew, this is A.O. from San Antonio. Got a question for you. Would the NFL ever consider making a franchise tag strictly a player that you tag but doesn't count against the cap? Someone that basically would allow you to, you know, this particular player is designated as our franchise player, so therefore we're going to pay him $40, 50000000 million, and that money would, wouldn't count against the cap. Just curious. Thank you. 
Yeah, that's a great question, Adolf. It's never really been considered. The franchise tag we've talked about a lot was a way to sort of guarantee you take your guy off the market, your free agent off the market, just by offering him or tendering him, which means count against the cap, the top five for franchise, top ten for transition. It's a big number. You know, the idea was supposed to, you know, keep the player on your team. It's really been a hindrance for players for reasons I've talked about before. Not only are you removing these few players out of the league off the market like a Jadavian Clowney, but you're restricting so many other players that are restricted by the negotiation part of it where team says, well, just get you on the tag. So you may see all these players that don't have tags, but tag was a big part of their negotiation, I think, to Russell Wilson so much. Russell Wilson had one year left. He could have really played the leverage game, but he took a deal because he looked in his mind, well, I got two years left or three years left because of the tag. Aaron Rodgers, two years left, but really three or four years left because of the tag. Matt Ryan, one, but really two. So, no, it's never been a cap consideration. One idea that I think would make sense if they do these negotiations to help players, help teams sign more players is, so you put a tag on, say, a defensive lineman, you put an $18 million tag on him. Then you do a deal that's whatever, $20, $22 million over seven years, six years. Uh, I guess I would propose never having the cap number more than the tag number that you started with. So usually the, tag, the cap number goes below the tag number in year one, but then above it in future years. I would say, okay... Make the team count the tag number even though you did a new deal, but keep the tag number from year one throughout the rest of the deal even though you're paying him more. That would give incentives for teams to do deals and obviously allow more more money for other players. So there's an idea. But no, cap money our tag money counts against the cap for whatever the tag is. And then the way it is now, you do the deal, the tag number comes off, and whatever the cap number is for your one, two, three, four, five stays, I would propose keeping the tag number from the year of negotiation throughout the rest of the deal. So let's see if uh, the NFL and NFLPA listen to that, Adolf, and they do my deal uh, instead of the one they're thinking about. Here's another question. Uh, looks like Shauna uh, from North Carolina. I have a question about the uh, current or uh, upcoming and current CBA uh, negotiations. I'm um, really interested. I keep hearing people mention the idea of going to an 18 games uh, season and um, basically different ways for how that could work. Uh, the most common thing I hear is switching to two preseason games and having a uh, um, 18 game uh, regular uh, game season. Um, I guess I'm really curious because the argument is that that would be the exact same number of games for players, so they wouldn't really be giving up that much. Um, but would training camp be shortened in order to compensate for the uh, you know lack of preseason? And in which case, are the players really interested in having a? Uh, do they care more about having the two extra games, or do they care more about having a longer season overall from when they have to report to training camp? Anyway, thanks. Yeah, my understanding is it wouldn't be a longer season. That would they would just start the season earlier. Now, if we get into two bye weeks, I guess we're dealing with that later in the season, but. Yeah, you'd basically have training camp at the same time, and a big issue for the NFLP has always been a longer offseason in terms of having activities. So training camp at the same time, two preseason games, you know, maybe they're weeks whatever, one and two are the ones now, weeks two and three of the ones now, and then starting the regular season and playing 18 games. 
you know, I've gotten into that before uh, in terms of what I think that's a key negotiating tool for the union in negotiations because I'm not sure what else they have to give up to get gains out of this CBA. But I don't know how it would work. Obviously, the union would have a lot of input where maybe, you know, maybe training camp would start later as a tra- as a trade-off. Uh, and then you just, you know, have these kind of meaningless preseason games whenever, and then you get into the season. So we'll see where that goes. But I don't know, you know, it's not really the time that's going to be the issue. I would doubt that any raised number of regular season games would raise the total time commitment of players. It's still going to be end of July to end of December for a regular season. And then we get in the playoffs. And speaking of playoffs, there does seem to be some noise out there that they're adding playoff games seems to be something that's more penable, more uh, amenable to the union than adding regular season games only involves two more teams or maybe it's four more teams. So we'll see about that. We'll be following this 18 game issue and all the CBA issues in our time to come. Thanks for those questions. I'll answer them every week. Ask Andrew 484-484-416-5654. That's how you leave your question. Again, 484-416-5654. Now, final word from our sponsor, Bet Online. We're at the start of college football season. As you're hearing this, Miami versus Florida is getting ready to go on Saturday. One place has you covered. That's betonline.ag. Get your free welcome, 50% welcome bonus betonline.ag use the promo code podcast one got a lot going not only that college game Miami versus florida we got all kinds of uh, preseason football packers and raiders in canada seattle chargers houston versus dallas so don't sit on the sidelines get in on the action 50 percent welcome bonus podcast one betonline.ag your online sportsbook experts That'll do it with a special edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt with David Epstein as our special guest. Really enjoyed having him. He is fantastic. Really appreciate all these that follow me on Twitter and leave Apple Podcast rankings wherever you hear your podcasts. Those rankings and comments mean so much to us. Really appreciate it. Thanks to my producer extraordinaire, Brian Neal. And we'll be back next week with another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Thanks for listening to the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. You can also get additional insider insight by listening to the Ross Tucker Football Podcast, Fantasy Feast, Even Money, and College Draft Podcast, all at rostucker.com or wherever podcasts are found. It's October 27, 2007. Mark Richt, Georgia football's head coach, strolls across the turf of Municipal Stadium in Jacksonville, Florida. In just 30 minutes, his Bulldogs will kick off against the Florida Gators. And for once, Richt is brimming with confidence. Both teams are now 5-2, so neither is really in national championship contention. But for Richt, this is still the most important game he's ever coached. It's chillier than usual today in Jacksonville, the city that's hosted pretty much every Florida-Georgia game since the 1930s. Jacksonville is supposed to be a neutral game site, but it doesn't feel that way to Richt. It's in Florida, for crying out loud, and a game called the Gator Bowl is played here. 
How could it be neutral, Rick thinks, as he looks up at a sea of orange and blue Gator fans. The Gators brought the Bulldogs to heel in five of their last six matchups. It's given Florida a huge mental edge and made the buttoned-up Georgia coach desperate enough to do something crazy. At least for him. Something with swagger, maybe a little arrogance. Something to get some fire in his squad's belly, even if it pisses off some football purists. Something, in other words, very un-Mark Richt-like. In seven seasons at Georgia, Richt has built a reputation as a man of faith whose quiet decency stands out in the cutthroat world of college football. For him, it's simple. You win with integrity. You lose with integrity. It's the Georgia way. That's what makes this, right now, the most off-the-wall moment of Mark Rick's entire career. As kickoff approaches, Rick makes his way back to the cramped locker room, stands before his players, and reminds them of his plan to snap their losing streak. He tells them, if you don't get a celebration penalty after our first score, you'll all be doing early morning runs. Welcome to Jacksonville and the 75th encounter at this site between these two better rivals. However, you need two to compete if you're going to have a real rivalry, and Georgia has lost, as we said, 15 of the last 17. Almost nine minutes into a scoreless game, with Georgia facing third and goal at the Florida one-yard line, star running back Sean Moreno takes a handoff and jumps over the pile of linemen in front of him. Moreno up over the top, Georgia, touchdown. And here comes the entire team, watch this, for excessive celebration. We may have 15 hankies in the air on this one. I can't believe this. This was planned. This was absolutely planned. Mark Rick decided that he is going to try to fire his team up. He's tired of Florida having the psychological advantage. He's willing to give up the penalty. Nearly every Georgia player on the sideline rushes the field. Penalty flags fly in every direction. The CBS cameras swing to the other sideline, anticipating a reaction from the Gators. Tim Tebow, Florida's phenomenally talented sophomore quarterback, looks confused. So does Tebow's coach, Urban Meyer. Meyer is frantically waving his Florida players off the field to avoid pointless penalties. Meanwhile, Rick takes it all in happily and knows his plan worked. The Gators are rattled. As the second half unfolds, Georgia still doesn't give away its lead. Here's Stafford. Marino. Georgia, touchdown. The Bulldogs match every Tebow touchdown with one of their own and win the game 42-30. For the first time in years, the Florida-Georgia game lives up to the hype. A rivalry that's been uneven in the last decade is incredible once again. Georgia's full-team touchdown celebration quickly gets a nickname in the media. The Gator Stomp. Richt is thrilled, but he's created an unexpected new problem. While he made the rivalry competitive again, he also just encouraged Urban Meyer, Tim Tebow, and the entire Florida team to spend the next 364 days plotting their revenge. That was just a preview of Sports Wars. To hear the rest of the story, subscribe to Sports Wars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now.